Welcome back to another episode of Launch AMA, where we ask startup experts about anything and everything. I'm your host as usual, Sam, the VP of Programs here at Launch Academy. Ian, thank you for joining us. Do you want to just introduce yourself real quick for those that don't know you? Sure. Uh, I'm Ian. I'm the CTO and one of the co-founders of Later.com. We're a social media management platform for visual media, mostly centered around Instagram. Um, before that, I had a slew of less successful startups. Um, but later we founded in 2014, depending on how you count. Um, and we're currently at around 100 employees. Um, I would say our headquarters is in Chinatown for whatever that means. But uh, yeah, we're all remote. Uh, we've hired something like 20 people since the uh, pandemic started and who've never, I've never actually met in MeetSpace um, before all. Uh, yeah, so like I was said, I was in GrowLab, the startup accelerator in town that kind of merged with and became, I forget what it's branded as now. Um, but uh, Launch Academy, I was there very early on. I spent three years in Launch Academy with various startups. Before that, I was at SAP, Google, and Perimeter Institute. Uh, I went to school and at Waterloo for computer science. So I like to think of myself as a techie through and through. That's awesome. So, so I mean, like, I, I, you know, I, I obviously have a relationship with you behind the scenes, so it's not like I'm learning this for the first time. But, but I always love the story of later. How did later get started? Yeah. So later started because. I have this little note in my phone of like shitty startup ideas and whenever I have a shitty startup idea, I always write it down and I always call it that because I don't want to have any pressure on the idea to be the next big thing because a lot of times they're just not, at, especially at first. So in 2013, I think we were just kicking on the idea of, you know, like this Instagram thing was starting to get big. You know, they didn't have an API where you could auto publish content at the time. But we were like, well, what would be the next best thing? You know, so we were the ones who pioneered like the push notification publishing, which was a really simple toy idea, which is that, okay, I'll schedule it on my desktop. I can't publish it automatically, but it'll just push down to my phone with a push notification message to make that easier. So we were like, let's assume like, you know, what's, you know, the next best solution. And then we kind of just, we were kicking around that idea for a while. I didn't even think that much of it. And it wasn't until like six months later, but sitting around in my shitty startup idea note where we were um, entering a hackathon. Um, Roger and I were at a different startup at the time and Matt and Cindy, um, who were at Thinkific at the time, we were the four founders of now later. By the time we were just entering a hackathon, we were just rhyming off um, ideas from what we could make for this uh, hackathon in, in fall of 2013. And I pitched this one out. And at the time it was like Matt's brother was dating some brand manager for some clothing company. And all she did was complain about how hard posting to Instagram on mass was. And in 2013, the writing was on the wall that this was what millennials were going to be using for shopping and Instagram was their new catalog. So he kind of knew like there was clearly a need for this. So we made it, we won the hackathon for whatever that was worth. Um, and then, you know, we just had something like 20,000 signups before we even launched. Um, granted, a lot of them didn't quite get that we didn't automatically publish, but uh, it was enough, you know, people who stayed, you know, enough to keep us going. Yeah, for sure. And and just to kind of preface it, you mentioned there were four co-founders at the beginning. So these were three different launch or companies working out of launch, right? And that's how you kind of came uh, to I know think them. it was just it was just two, it was Thinkific and MapDash. So Roger okay. and I were yeah, so Roger is later CEO and he was CEO of MapDash, although that was just me and him then. Being CEO of a 100-person company is a lot more meaningful than being CEO of a two-person company. But, you know, that's the interesting thing about startup world. Mm -hmm. uh, and Matt was CTO over at Thinkific, and Cindy was their design lead. Gotcha. And then and then really you guys built that MVP at the hackathon. And and I, I've been to a lot of hackathons. What made you want to actually release it? I don't know if it was a private release or public release. Well, the, what we did is we actually had to launch into the app store. So what yep. we did is we had, you know, beta, Apple will give you the beta version. Um, but the nice thing is that you can roll out country by country. And if you launch just to Canada, you can make sure all your friends and everyone can see it. But until the U.S. market can see it, it almost doesn't really exist. So what we would do is we launched to Canada, found a few bugs, got some user feedback, rolled out to a few more countries, a few more um, bug fixes until... For the 1.0, we um, went live to the U.S. and the rest of the world. Crazy. So maybe maybe kind of tie into this and 
drawing back to more in your history, Alex here is asking how, and I don't think it's Alex, you and I know, um, okay. how, how, do, how do you build B2B sales without any budget? B2B sales, um, we did our, we were always kind of this weird sort of B2B thing because, you know, we were open to the public and a consumer could use us. We were only really useful to other businesses. For us, what allowed us to get that initial traction, um, like sure you post on product count, sure you post on beta list or whatever, it doesn't, you know, you might get to a bit of a blip, but they're not necessarily your customers. The best way we found was just Google SEO. Um, when people are searching for a problem and you were given the solution, that's kind of the best wind at your back you can get. So for us, we knew that at the time, there was a lot of people, because using Google AdWords, you can actually see what people are searching for. And it won't give you exact um, numbers, but you can see like Instagram scheduler, that there was a lot of people searching for something. And if you Googled that term, there wasn't a lot of competition to be the best at that. So by us being the first one there, we just kind of arbitraged that there was an opportunity there because we knew a lot of people were searching for that term from what we got from the Google AdWords tool, but there just wasn't anyone buying ads on it and there wasn't any content on there. So content marketing was the easy one for us by just people searching for something, they get to your site, it's an easy go. And um, we've expanded on that. Our blog is just ubiquitous in the social media space. And I always love when I tell people, hey, I work at Later, and they say, oh, that's so cool, I like your blog. I'm like, cool, the one thing I have nothing to do. How about the actual <laughs> product, you know? The blog tech? doesn't pay the bills, you know, the, the, the thing that the blog is really just a inbound funnel for. So um, if you have no budget content marketing, if you can write is a good way to at least get started on that and kind of get your SEO up. Think about what people are searching for. SEO is old as the internet itself, but it's still a great way of getting started for, you know, because you have people with intent coming to you. Yeah. And then, so, I mean, at the beginning, there was four of you. Was was content a focus from, from day one because you were trying to build SEO? We didn't have, we, we were able to build SEO just because there was no one else competing mm -hmm. for it. As yeah. it like for like how to schedule to Instagram or whatever our terms were. As things got more competitive, the blog launched and then that just became a huge focus. So I would, so broadly speaking, I would say, we launched in spring of 2014, and by spring of 2015, um, our blog launched, and that was going to be our content uh, marketing engine for up until now. And now it has hundreds of thousands of daily actives. It's always impressive whenever they post up the stats. Yeah, and and the reason the reason I'm trying to kind of dig more into this is because I know. Um, some people listening may have smaller teams and might just be co-founders of two. I think you guys were were pretty cool to have four co-founders, um, but. I imagine, you know, there's, there's the technical person building, building the product. And then there's a, what people call as this kind of arbitrary business blank. Right. Yeah. But, but, you know, even within that realm and even within the technical realm too, there's multiple things for, for both people to, to do. So where, like a lot of times when I'm, when I'm talking to, to younger or smaller companies, like they struggle with building content with building SEO because they say they don't, I wouldn't say they don't have the time. I would say they don't prioritize it. Um, but where do you think along the line of, of duties that, that, that kind of aligns? Even among our four founders, none of us really were writing for the blog. Our first hire was a community manager, though, specifically for that. We were kind of blessed because in our founder team, there's, you know, three people who wrote software and then Cindy, our designer. So we were always product people centric. So our first hire was a community manager precisely because we needed that filled, we needed a blog, we needed someone to help out with support tickets early on, which community managers hate when you make them do, but, you know, fortunately at that point, you know, whereas our support team is something like 30 people, um, at the time, you know, one person could handle the support tickets in about, you know, a couple hours a day. So, you know, we just needed someone to handle all those things. Otherwise, you know, the CEO kind of has to. I'm, I'm a big believer of like the maker and the manager schedule. If you have the product person, um, yeah, I've worked, seen a lot of companies, and even when you have two technical people, they kind of fall into one person kind of being the builder who needs those eight hour stretches of like no uninterrupted time to get some work done, build the product, whatever you're making. And then you kind of need one other person to handle everything around it. Um, you know, usually, you know, the CEO as it were, but there's just going to be a lot of like little one hour tasks and those kind of pile up. And, you know, if I would say the CEO should be kind of helping out with any content marketing, if you can early on, but ultimately the CEO's job early on is you have to have someone in charge of getting customers in. Mm 
And if that's by blogging, that's how you do it. If it's um, a more enterprisey B2B, they've got to be out there developing relationships. That's their job. But you kind of need one person who's protected from kind of the distractions of things coming at you. And there's a lot early on. Um, I mean, it gets worse as you go on. Like the number, amount of business development outreach I get is just ridiculous. I've had to basically shut off my LinkedIn from allowing the arbitrary requests because the number of suspiciously attractive Ukrainian people who are messaging me like, <laughs> hey, do you need outsourcing? You know, like, anyway. Uh, anyway, but you just get so many of those things thrown at you. You kind of need one person who can kind of delegate their day and say, like, okay, I'm going to blog right for an hour. I'm going to talk to customers for one hour, do that. But then you have one other founder who, or ideally, who's going to spend all their time just building whatever you're selling. No, that, that makes perfect sense. So, so we have, we have a question from Jing. So he says, hi, Ian, great to meet you. I'm Jing from Media Surfer Inc. So we developed a product related with online marketing as well. My question is, how is Later.com doing now? How many daily users and are they free or paid users? Um, you can, you can, you know, approximate that if you like. Um, and how do you compete yeah. with company, bigger companies and differentiate your platform? Right. So in terms of daily actives, we, um, or I guess, I actually don't stay on top of the stats as much as I used to because the stats I worry about are like, what is the uptime for the site? What is our deliverability? Mm -hmm. Eventually you kind of have to like not look at it early in the time I checked at this every day. Like I remember the biggest threshold for later when I knew it was going to be something was when we had a hundred daily active users. So we launched in spring of 2014 and by the early summer, there were just a hundred people daily active. And for me, this was like more than anything else I'd ever made. And I know it doesn't seem like a lot now because now we're easily in the tens of thousands of daily actives. Um, and yeah, you push in on hundreds of thousands of daily actives. Um, but the early first hundred, you're like, there's a hundred people out there that I don't know who are using this every day for their job. That was kind of the easy ones. Um, free versus paid. I mean, I, I'm actually not really sure of the ratio. We have been kind of focusing more on the paid users just because, you know, bills got to get paid. Um, mm -hmm. We generally view the free users as kind of funneling in to the paid accounts. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, we don't really, we've just added a free trial. I've always kind of been of the opinion that, you know, the free tier was the free trial, but some people need, we're having a bunch of features that people can't really get until they try them out. So we've been offering that out. We've been testing that out. Um, but yeah, in terms of like paid users, it's still in like the tens of thousands. We're still, um, in terms of COVID, we had a bit of a dip in March and April. I feel like a lot of people online just kind of freaked out and like started shutting down all their costs, but, you know, um, it rebounded really quick. And then, you know, things have just kind of moved online anyway. So we've been doing pretty well through this whole um, situation. In terms of competing with bigger companies and differentiated platform, people tend to always care about, you know, as we call it, the owl in town, um, just because that's the uh, 400, you know, proverbial 400 pound owl in town. Uh, the reality is, is that they, they might have borrowed an idea of ours back in 2015. And that kind of flattened our growth for about two months. But ever since then, it just, we have not really been given them much thought. Big enterprise -y companies kind of focus on enterprise sales. And we've always been kind of focused on the small and medium business. Amazingly, the competitors that we have are actually much lighter in the SMB space. As soon as you start going enterprise, it kind of consumes everything you do and it's all you can think of. So those big companies tend to be more focused on the enterprise side of things. Um, you know, and sure they have consumer offerings, but you know, they know where their money is coming from. It's coming from enterprise and they're always going to be focusing on that. And that's just a enterprise software is just such a different beast than what we do. Um, you have to charge an arm and a leg. You have to have support people available all the time. You have to have account managers and it actually just changes the culture of your company. So our whole you know, thing is to have a bunch of like little SMBs paying us rather than a smaller number of, you know, gargantuan companies. So um, as much as like, there is competition at the SMB level, it's much more manageable than some of the larger companies you tend to think of when you think of the social media marketing space. Mm. So, so there, I mean, there, there's, there's a ton to unpack in that, that one answer there. Um, yeah. So, so I, I, I'd love to dive deep into it while you guys just type away your questions. Um, but, but the first thing is like, I think on a more general level as people, I think in 2013, you talked about, you know, later kind of being first to, to market in terms of, you know, working with Instagram, Instagram tools. Yeah. Um, nowadays, if someone want, tried to come into the Instagram space, there's, there's a, I'm guessing a lot more. Um, but, but just in general, like if you're, if you're entering a new market and, and I think in some of the cases of these companies, they're not necessarily brand new companies, but let's say they, they have 
a version of later in in Ukraine, like we just talked about. And now they're mm-hmm. they're moving to to Vancouver because they want to expand into North America. Um, maybe some of the clientele is already in the states. Like how do, how do you go up against already what feels like established brands? And like how would how would you kind of try to prove your find your lane that way? You have to find a channel um, and kind of a need that's not being met by them. For us, the need that wasn't being met by the existing social media companies was that none even attempted to do Instagram. So we were like, well, let's pitch out our little half-ass solution, which wasn't going to do it. But our kind of key thing that we thought about was that other companies, social media managers have the Instagram problem so bad that they would tolerate our little kind of imperfect solution. And that's what happened. And then eventually we kind of proved that out and some of the big players took it. The problem with going kind of making a copycat project, something that someone has already done is that you have to kind of find a channel to find customers and nothing else. Even if you made the exact same product we did and charged half as much, you'd have a problem because like, how are people going to find you? If you're charging half as much, you're not going to be paying for the AdWords that we are. You're not going to be getting the SEO for it because it's already there. Like you have to be a way that your customers find you. A lot of early stage founders, you know, they worry about finding the technical co-founder. I think that's the hardest thing. And it's really not. Um, Finding a technical co-founder is just the hardest thing in front of you. After that, it's building the product. And then once you have that out, it's getting people to use it and then improving and iterating on that product. Um, So if you're going up against incumbents, you have to find something that they don't do and a channel to get to their customers that they haven't completely monopolized. So, you know, if you're looking for the SEO content marketing, if there's already people playing in that space, you're going to have a lot harder of a time getting to the top of that heap, unless you have really good content or are updating it far more frequently. Mm-hmm. And then, and the other part of, of Jing's original question was, was talking about free or paid. And you mentioned like when you guys hit daily active, that's, that's when you kind of, you, you attempted to actually try to charge your customers. Um, we actually started charging people um, much later than that. We were just happy to have the growth. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like maybe, maybe walk us through that decision process of like, how do you go basically, I don't know if freemium is the right term, but like you had completely free and then you, you turn on yeah. a paid thing, right? Yeah. So what happened was uh, we were launching it and you know, the cost, it was a side project um, and it was a side project way too long. I think that was one of the things I keep telling people is if I have any regrets, it was, we should have gone full time on it when we first, you know, probably about nine months before we did, but you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, so through the summer of 2014, it was growing and it was growing and we had the free tier on all these services like Mixpanel to do our tracking and uh, Heroku is where we're deployed to. We're still deployed to Heroku. Um, so all those online services are super cheap when you're small. But when we were starting to hit about a thousand daily actives, um, we were starting to hit the threshold of like this, you know, the total cost for operating later was going to go from like $50 a month to $1,000 a month real fast. So 50 bucks a month between two found, four founders is nothing. 1,000 bucks a month, you're starting to be like, okay, now this is like real money. And our thinking was that, well, we're making a tool that helps business. They should be paying for it. We're not gonna be subsidizing you know, social media managers who are using it for their job out of the goodness of our own heart. I mean, the ultimate proof of whether you're creating value or not is to charge. So, and we also knew that um, because, you know, the owl is local, we knew the owl Hootsuite waited way too long to introduce pricing um, and they let things grow. And then we were like, let's nip this in the bud within the first year of operating. Let's get people used to the idea that they're going to have to pay for this. So we just kind of like picked a number, threw it out there and boy, did people scream. And, you know, because if you're used to getting something for free and then, you know, you're being told they have to pay it, they will scream bloody murder. But, you know, the right price for something, you know, you found it when people are complaining, but they still pay it. So as yep. much as we lost some people, we had the freemium tier, but we decided that, okay, if you're posting more than 30 times a month, like more than once a day, you're probably doing it professionally. And we put about, about that much market research into it. The nice thing about being small is that you can kind of just throw a number out there and see if it goes. And if you piss off a few people, it's not the end of the world. I think people get pretty precious. Now we're in the middle of changing our pricing now, and it is such an ordeal. So when you're small, just change it, do it. You know, you can email all your customers and be like, sorry, now we have to like have grandfathering and all these other things. It's just such a bigger deal. So if you're going to play around with price, it's a good idea to do it early. And one of the tricks that you can always do is set a high price, but then offer, you know, discounts to what, you know, the number you think it is to kind of figure out what something is. So whenever you're debating whether to price something, go high. And if it doesn't take, offer discounts. And then eventually you just kind of make that your new number. Have you ever considered different pricing for different geographies, just based on cultural expectations and things like that? Yeah, we, 
one of the things that we have done is that we've made the Android app not available in certain countries um, precisely because we were worried about the rate at which they would upgrade. Android still does not convert anywhere near what iPhone is. I remember like we had the iPhone version at first and we were like, okay, let's, um, you know, go with, you know, every, the number of people who were just demanding an Android version was like people, I think non-developers seem to think that, you know, I push one button for the iPhone version and another button for the Android and we're just an asshole for not pushing the Android button. Um, <laughs> you know, like, you know, it takes a lot. You know, we have an Android team now and they're great, but um, when we launched Android, we're like, well, there's so many people just demanding this. It's going to double all our numbers. It's like a 30% increase. Um, yep. And the, in terms of upgrading, people who find us through the Android Google Play Store, they hardly ever upgrade. Um, now, Android users who find us through the web and then start using Android, that's fine. They tend to upgrade. But, you know, it, so what we just kind of did is for a lot of countries, we said, okay, if you're massive, non-English speaking, are you going to have cause a support problem? We just didn't enable it in certain countries. Now, we've been revisiting that as we go through um, because we just have one standard of pricing. We don't, we just, any country we didn't think were, were because we were freemium, any country where we think that wouldn't have been worthwhile, we just didn't enable it. And that was fine. Also, there's just certain places that don't make sense for a social media app. Like the number of users we have in China is just, I don't, I don't, we have like a small number and I'm wondering why, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram are all not available there. <laughs> so what, why, what are you up to? Um, you know, why bother? But uh, yeah, for the most part, we just, any kind we actually enabled the iPhone app in all countries, but for the Android one, just because of the support load and confusion around the app, and we just can't support all the languages yet. You know, one of the things that you'll kind of, I think a lot of, the nice thing is about working in North America or anywhere that you can just have support one language is you can just focus on that before trying to localize and go international. Um, and that's one of the problems that you're always going to have in Europe is that, you know, the number of languages and support systems that you have to have to launch something in the European market is a lot higher than North America. And I mean, into China's credit, the nice thing you can do there is you have a huge market and you can get by with um, just one standard. Whereas for us, you know, we if we are gonna support like even South America, well, all of a sudden we have to have a Spanish version. Now we have to have Spanish support. And those are the kind of things that you can do much later. And we've been around for oh, geez, almost seven years now and we still haven't internationalized yet. Um, if you're enterprise, you definitely have to. But if you think about markets, then, you know, make sure it's worth your while. Sometimes, you know, adding, because as soon as you add a country and support that language, you then have to maintain it. So, and that takes a lot of work that you might not need to do. And fortunately, we're right next to the U.S. market. And most of our paying users are still from Australia, U.K., Canada, U.S. Um, but, you know, now we're in a position where we're big enough where we can start talking about um, internationalizing and localizing for other countries. That makes a lot of sense. So did you ever find out why Android users don't pay? Because, because backtrack, like, I mean, in 2010 to 2012, like we were already having this issue and it seems like even today it's still an issue is, is, is like Android users don't seem to convert even anywhere close to Apple users. I, I've heard it so many times um, from other founders too. They, um, if you are making a freemium app, Android is sometimes just not worth it. Um, I, I, I've talked to one of the founders who was at Launch Academy and she's like, she had a paid app and she's like the costs of keeping Android up to date are like just below what we get from it in terms of revenue. Mm -hmm. um, my working theory about the Android thing is that Android, and this is all just personal opinion, Android users look down on iPhone users for like wasting their money paying a lot of things. But mm -hmm. if I'm a marketer, I wanna market people who are used to giving away money. You know, if you have people who are like looking for the value proposition and also just worldwide, Android is bigger, but you do get places where, um, you know, I think Rajiv was saying he's a percent of iPhone users in North America. Um, I don't know what is in North America and India is close to 95%. But what that means is that 95% of Android users in India, you know, that's a, that's a huge place with a much lower GDP per capita. Yeah. So you're just not going to, you know, $5 a month in North America, something completely different in other places that might have an Android. And you just have the whole fragmentation problem where iPhone, there's only really a couple of phones for a couple of years that you need to support, whereas there's just so many different versions of Android. So the costs in maintaining it are much higher. So if you, like we were iPhone only to start and, you know, about a year after launch, we added our Android version. And in terms of regrets, I would say adding the Android version, like we could have waited much longer because you have all this dem apparent demand for Android. 
but when it actually translates into paid upgrades, it is shockingly small. So, and again, I think it's just Android, iPhone users, you're getting people who are paying top dollar for something, so they're a higher market segment. And a lot more businesses are gonna use iPhones anyway. But yeah, that was the biggest, one of the big shockers we have, which is um, how, and I've heard this from many other founders, how they kind of really, especially if you're making something that exists only on an app. Now, if your market is, you know, it, it has to, it, you know, it's like, if I'm making an app for the Indian market, then obviously I have to make an Android app. But if I'm making it for North America, iPhone is all you really need to do. And that's been true for a decade now. Mm -hmm. And and that's not just your line, but, you know, other founders you've met across the board in, in various different businesses as well, you think? Yeah. And if you're, especially if you're like doing in-app purchases, the amount of money you'll get from iPhone just dwarfs anything, you know, again, it, the consensus is that, and it's the same with us, we're like, yes, technically, you know, Android probably makes enough to warrant the development cost, but it's so early on, it wouldn't be worth it. And, you know, now obviously at our scale, we just have to have two versions, but just because people demand an Android version doesn't mean they'll get it. And it doesn't mean they'll um, uh, pay for it. Like I remember we had people demanding a Windows phone version for years. And even after Microsoft announced that they were killing Windows Phone. We had users demanding a Windows Phone version. So, yeah. Still waiting for my Palm OS version. Mm -hmm. What about my BlackBerry, dude? You know, as a Waterloo grad, I feel <laughs> like it was so hard when I, because I had a BlackBerry back in the day and then I switched to an iPhone and it was really hard because I felt like BlackBerry was like my team, my people. It was such a cool device, but eventually, yep. you know, the writing was on the wall that that was where it was going to go. Yeah, I, I work for BlackBerry too, so <laughs> soft part in my heart, but um, more questions here. Uh, I'll, I'll finish up with Rajiv first, but they've put Android development on hold, focusing on iPhone. Replicating yeah. Android is easy whenever they require. Um, and maybe that's that's one tip for, for companies that are looking to expand to Canada is, is maybe previously a lot of their resources were, were on Android because of their home markets. And maybe that's shifting shifting the focus here when when they've mm -hmm. hit North America if they haven't already. Um, and to kind of circle back, I think even in North America there are more Android users than iPhone users. It's just I think yeah. iPhone users are more willing to pay for things. The way I tell people is that my dad has an iPhone and my mom has an Android. My mom doesn't know that she has an Android. Like she just has a phone. Like whereas my dad has an iPhone, he gets new apps, he tries them out. Um, yep. So even though Android can say like whatever percent, if you look at the profitability per platforms, iPhone's the way to go. And I know like React Native kind of cuts a corner there, allows you to do that. I've always been a big fan of native development. Actually, one of the things that we um, pitch when we're hiring mobile developers is they don't have to do any uh, React Native and that everything is going to be in our native platforms. There's trade-offs to that. But even if you have, you know, building in React Native if you're deploying out to Android, there's still going to be glitches. There's so many edge cases. It's, again, early on North America, focus on iPhone. Really? I kind of want to dig into that. So so why do you guys encourage native coding versus, and I might not understand the answer, but I'm hopefully somebody, yeah. somebody on, on in the audience might, versus, you know, being responsive or, or even. Sure. There's nothing yeah. wrong with React Native for a lot of apps. Um, but as soon as you're doing something kind of interesting with the hardware, you know, I, I put React Native is really good at quickly getting you to like 80% complete. So you get this feeling of like, hey, we're doing both, but that last 20% can really be a slog to make things work nicely for, usually the Android side is the, the hardest part towards the end. Um, mm -hmm. For us, just, you know, you're, the React Native is always gonna, if you have a very simple app, there's nothing wrong with React Native, but like with us, we do a lot with push notifications. We want something very responsive. Um, and a lot of it just came down to like React Native got big after we'd already made our versions. And Roger, our CEO, every now and then is like, why aren't we on React Native? And, you know, we would say, <laughs> da, 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 you know, and they always talk about like how Facebook does this. But Facebook also has someone like a thousand mobile developers. I don't know what they're <laughs> trying to say, like, you know, what it really gets. Like, we're doing fine with both. But I, we also find that there is kind of two camps and you're kind of better picking one because for us recruiting, we can say like, look, we picked the native camp. So people who don't want to do JavaScript development want to do Swift or Kotlin development, like we're targeting those people. And mm -hmm. I know there's this dream of sharing code between the two code bases. The number of places I've seen that can really do that, any kind of scale is a lot smaller than I think it works. Like you see 
it's going to be an opinion, a very opinionated topic. And it almost doesn't matter which side you're on, but you have to kind of pick it. And I think that for, with React Native, the tricky thing is you never want to rewrite something in React Native. If you're starting yeah. from the beginning and doing React Native or something like Flutter, then you're in a much better place than if you're kind of like integrating half and half. I think that's where a lot of places get into trouble is if you have an existing app and then try and switch over. Makes sense. Um, another question about Jing, I think more about mobile user acquisition is how do you acquire new users? Have you launched uh, Facebook and Google UAC campaigns for app downloads? Um, we definitely do a lot of Facebook ads, but we don't do it for app downloads because in general, the business, people who are searching in the app stores tend to be more consumer oriented, which isn't our big focus. Um, the ones that we really like are the ones who are finding us through Google because they tend to be more business. Just you know, think about it. If I'm at work, I'm on a laptop. If I'm a personal user, I'm using from my phone. So we do a lot of Facebook ads, but not to drive people to app downloads. We drive them to our landing, our marketing page at later.com. Um, Google, oh yeah, all kinds of Google ads, but again, not in the app store. Um, we do them there. If you have a consumer app, that's perfectly fine. I would do that. If, pardon me, if the flow is that someone downloads your app, uses it, and then upgrades, yes, obviously you want to like look at the cost of um, acquisition and make sure that that is way less than the long-term value of any customer you get from them upgrading. Um, but yeah, in terms of, we always do kind of like web-based ads and uh, web-based Google searches, but not to the app stores. But then, that's just the nature of what we do. There's nothing wrong with those if you can make those profitable. With with you know, your B2B focus, does LinkedIn ads become into play at all? We are, the only thing is that we don't have LinkedIn support on the platform yet. Mm -hmm. So we haven't done too much on there, but yep. when it comes to, we've done Twitter ads, we've done all of them. What it comes down to is that Facebook ads, like there's a reason Facebook can charge a premium for ads, the users they get us, like that is our, the amount of money we send Mark Zuckerberg in ads every month is just disgusting. It's, you know, <laughs> That's why they're at the top. <laughs> yep. um, uh, another development question. Do you have any tech experience in running teams in other countries? Because they have a team in India and want, and now they're kind of trying to figure out this kind of hybrid model, like whether they handle key resources in North America and continue development work in, in India, where you know they already have an existing team. And I think the, the obvious is it's cheaper. Um, yeah. But what are your kind of thoughts on that? Um, I'm, I've always had the teams here, um, locally in, you know, it, the only time it's, it's only been remote because of COVID. I've been a big fan of like having the team together, gelling in person in one time zone, especially, um, the only time we've ever done remote is the first version of our Android app. We actually outsourced to some guy in Bel Bulgaria and that actually wasn't as bad as I was worried about. Um, but I mean, we're developers and we're, we, the whole founder team are our own product people and we're located here. I know a lot of people who successfully done it. But there's something to be said about when you're doing any kind of creative work about having all the people in one room together, able to bounce ideas off each other, kick ideas around when it's, and we've kind of found this with um, COVID is that when everyone's not in the same place at the same time, it's hard to just shoot the shit proverbially, you know, just, you know, when, if every conversation people have is going to be structured and there's a meeting for it, you do kind of lose something in the creative element of things. And sometimes whenever you're problem solving, it's just, three people talking around a coffee machine can give you some degree of solution. So I, I think where your team is doesn't matter, but having them all together does help. And I, but yeah, I, I've no, I wouldn't have any kind of experience in having a remote development team as much as all the Ukrainian business development managers on LinkedIn would like me to try. <laughs> and, and I think one of the more underrated skills is like outsourcing is in my opinion, and, and we've outsourced minor small projects and things like that. It's, it's very much a skill because, mm -hmm. because, and, and people don't talk about it because they just go, Oh, it's cheaper. And you know, I can pay for 10 devs somewhere else versus two devs here. Or like, you know, they try and do that comparison math, but the amount of time I'm going to have to have to explain to my outsourced team, what I actually want done. And in specific cases, when you're talking about creative work, you need them to think beyond the manual I've given them. Like that is a new task that wouldn't be there if you had people in the same room as you, right? So, so it's not yeah. an apples to apples comparison, I think, that, that people often try to find and just go, well, it's, it's just numbers. Um, but I mean, some people I find that are really talented at being able to explain things, being able to document things, being able to manage people remotely. Um, and they probably fare better at it than someone like me, for example. 
And there is a distinction between having a remote team and um, using outsources. I'm generally not a fan of outsourcers because if you're a software company and you're outsourcing the software development, you've outsourced your core comp, like what are you doing? You're not gonna be able to respond to the market as quickly as possible because um, you, you need a dedicated team um, that are in on things. And you know, we've definitely gotten some help here and there, but I, part of it is like for me as a software developer, I've always kind of like, I usually have the opposite problem where I wanna do everything myself personally, but now, most of what I do is management, um, you know, so I like to do it in house and that's just how we run things. But if you think about it, like there aren't that many big software companies that don't have their own dev team. Like I can't think of any software company that relies entirely on outsourcers to get what they need done. You can help with projects. And like I said, we've kind of, for our mobile teams, we've augmented here and there, but ultimately whatever you're doing in business, you have to be the best at, you know, you have to be better than your competitors at doing it. And if you're outsourcing it, you know, what's to stop your competitors from just paying your outsourcers more to do the same thing. And, you know, eventually you have to bring kind of what you do in-house. Um, and, but there are, and occasionally you get people who are successful, but if, you know, if you're outsourcing and my team is all in one room together and committed to it, we're just going to out iterate you and just develop faster. If you're waiting on an outsourcer and having to pay them, you know, the money isn't usually the hardest part. And I've been hearing about the outsourcer thing. Like I went, I started university in like 2001, right when the dot-com bubble was bursting. And I was like, oh man, what am I getting myself into? And everyone was talking about how, you know, it's outsourcing is the rage. There's going to be no jobs in North America. And now it's 20 years later. And, you know, the reality is there's software development jobs just everywhere now because the demand is far outstripped the supply. But one of the key things about software development is knowing that one good developer is worth 10 mediocre ones anywhere, 10 cheap ones, just because, Anyone, pretty much everyone should at least read the Coles notes for the mythical man month to know that software development is its own special instance. And, you know, a team of 20 people is not going to go twice as fast as a team of 10. So having very good, dedicated, and especially developers who understand the product, understand the scope, you know, three of those are going to do more than, you know, a 40 person team um, who's just, you know, out doing outsourcing, doesn't understand the product, is just kind of, because there's a point where if you have to specify what you're doing to an outsourcer so much, you're basically programming anyway. Because if you're having to specify every little interaction, well, that, that's coding anyway. So <laughs> That's fair. And so it feels like double the work in, in totality. Mm -hmm. um, what about remote work? So obviously you, you mentioned, you know, you have, how, how big is the development team that you're managing now? Uh, the development uh, 25 ish, <laughs> something like that. I mean, Depends if you can't co-ops or not. You know, we still have co-ops um, working. Yeah, we were always, um, the entire product team, as much as our product team has always been, you know, in office, you know, we're, let's assume what I'm saying there is true up until March of this year. Yeah. Um, the entire product team was in office. For all the developers, designers, product people, we were in the office. Our marketing and customer support teams had some remote elements. Um, obviously, everything is kind of up for grabs right now because we're all yep. remote. I'm actually in the later office right now. We've reopened it, um, and there's yep. about six other people here in a place that would normally have 50. It's actually eerie, but um, I'm a big fan of having the team because communication between software developers, again, back to Medical Man Month, the big problem is you know communication between. So document if you're going remote, documentation processes have such heavier weight attached to them. So I think as much as you're going to see more people kind of with this hybrid model of more working from home, I think a lot of people are going to realize that you still lose that, that kind of creative element um, yeah. by not going into an office. And, but having a remote team, like you can, you can make it work. It just requires a lot more structure. And that's what we've been finding out. And the reality is I kind of like coming into work, you know, I'm, there's a reason I wasn't a remote employee for somewhere else is that I wanted to start my own company. I wanted like there to be people element and, I kind yep. of need to get out of the house, you know, every, for some reason. Screaming so. babies. <laughs> yeah. That was um, a pretty new uh, part, though. Yeah. What? So what adjustments have you made since March then for, especially particularly with, with your, your product teams in terms of, of, you mentioned about building more structure and things like that. Like, yep. are there active things that you've done to kind of try and mitigate the, the differences between, I guess, physical work and, and remote work? We initially kind of went a little too crazy trying to brace people because it was also just the psychological impact of what was going on. So we were trying to have like daily um, meetings with the entire dev team where people were getting giving presentation. And then, you know, we were doing these uh, donuts where, which is a Slack app where it pairs you with a random person. You just have a, it, it's kind of to simulate that yep. 
conversation between random people and we actually kind of overloaded our staff with this and they're kind of like i can't get work done because you know everyone's so busy checking in on me and making sure i'm okay <laughs> that you know there's a point where it had to dial so we dialed a lot of things back and the tricky thing is that if you just replaced all your in-person meetings with zoom meetings you're really doing a disservice you're all your product people who need those eight hour stretches of time are now in zoom meetings the whole time so a lot of it is like well can we get rid of this meeting can you know the whole can this meeting just be an email is a big one for us in terms of the development team um we were always on slack with a hybrid model the biggest one is that the default is obviously that meetings are on zoom rather than in person mm -hmm. um one of the big ones we ended up doing is what we call meeting free wednesday and this has been a huge hit just because we found this proliferation of meetings happen we kind of everyone agreed that wednesdays today is the day where like just no meetings can be scheduled and that has just helped our productivity so much and you know it gets hard because you know some people are trying to say hey i'm trying to schedule a meeting and i want to do it on wednesday and everyone's available that day i can't do it but I'm, and there's no other time any other day and i have to say that's a feature not a bug like if you if you can can't get these a meeting with these people they're over they have too many already so some of that is like just dealing with a company at our scale like early on if you have two three four people you just don't have that kind of meeting overhead. But when you get to our size and, you know, and a feature launch requires support being on board and marketing, it's just, that's just how it's going to have to be. But that's a much later stage problem. But yeah, meeting free Wednesday definitely was one of the big ones that helped us going forward. Um, beyond that, on the development side, documenting things has become a much more important issue. We have a backend team, we have a front end team, we have the mobile team, the two, all the client teams. Um, because I can't just kind of yell like, hey, anyone know what the API response should be for this? Um, and every yeah. little Slack notification becomes a distraction, it's a disruption. So ideally, you know, documentation is meant to be your way of saying like, hey, don't ping me, just go search for it in our internal wiki first. That's funny. Am I interrupting on your uh, meeting free Wednesday then? Yeah, <laughs> I just realized it's, it's Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> I just realized I mean, it's Wednesday. Yeah, yeah, so so get me though. for sure. Um, so if you guys have any last questions, you know we're we're at the forty-five minute mark, so so pump them in real quick. But just kind of wrap things up. Like I wanted to touch a little bit on on. I know you guys are hiring, but what what is hiring for for developers like as as a Vancouver tech company nowadays? And and like what do you what are kind of your some of your strategies that you could recommend for others? Um, well, one of the things that I mentioned was that if you're React Native, go React Native and like. Like it's, you, you are going to have to choose um, your mobile platform and whatever you are, lean into it and kind of sell people on that because there's a lot of de native developers who don't want to do React Native and there's a lot of developers who just love React Native and they want to stick with that. So if you pick there, um, that's one way that you can get uh, mobile developers. Your tool stack is going to be important. There are a lot of people who um, find, in terms of like, we're a Ruby on Rails backend shop. And that's a little harder to find developers, but the ones that we do get tend to be far more fanatical about it. Uh, we also hire out of co-op programs. We hire out of Lighthouse Labs. Um, we've long, I was a Lighthouse Labs instructor before I you know, got too busy with later and had to do that one. I actually kind of miss when Lighthouse Labs and Launch Academy were in the same office. It just kind of like, there was such a vibe to that. You know, Obviously two entities got too big to be together. The vibe like was noisiness. Although, <laughs> yeah, there was some of that, but um, you know, you felt like you were in the center of yeah. the Vancouver world for sure. And there was at least this little synergy where like one of our first development hires was out of Lighthouse Labs. So you can only really do that if you can give them mentorship, um, but you'd be amazed what junior people can actually get you doing. So juniors are always easier to find. So the trick is trying to find the best juniors, um, but I'd only recommend do that if you can give them mentorship. There's a lot of startups that are like hiring at a load lighthouse for their technical co-founders. And that's just, I don't think that's ever really worked because if a junior person now leading a tech team, that's gonna, they just don't have the experience and to know how to do it. They can probably make an MVP, but eventually that person needs to have mentorship. Um, I have seen some interesting models where people will hire that person and then kind of get a consultant to be their mentor to kind of look over things. But ultimately, if you're a tech company, you're gonna need a technologist on your staff leading things who's good at it. Like there's just kind of no getting around that one. Um, in terms of hiring in Vancouver, it's tough. Even now with COVID, there was a few layoffs. Things got a little easy in April, but things have kind of settled down. People realize that tech is largely unaffected by things. So um, in a lot of cases, tech is actually growing. So it's just, it's going to be competitive hiring out there. You have to go meet people. Um, but I think just be, if you are open to juniors, I say 
grab some of them because you can always kind of, there's always juniors available who have some level of experience, but senior people, you're going to be competing with Amazon and a lot of other places. And we have that problem right now. So offering a good place to work. The good news is that there's nobody who's like on the fence between working at a very early stage startup and Amazon. They're kind of on one stage or the other. Um, but like a lot of people who work my age who are developers, you know, they have families, so they want the stability of Amazon. Um, you know, so you're going to get a lot of junior people who are willing to, you know, YOLO a few years of their career early on at some crazy startup. Mm -hmm. What would you say? And, and I don't know if you have an exact ratio, but like in terms of, let's say you have one senior developer or slash CTO, whatever you want to call that, yeah. that person, like how many juniors, like, would you kind of put under them to mentor? Like what, what, what would you say the ratio before you're like, okay, we, we can't do this. We actually do need someone more senior on our staff. <sighs> Two or three. Um, I mean, and they have to be pretty motivated because there are just senior. My general rule is that, like, you know, there should always be like two, you know, a master and an apprentice style. Mm -hmm. You know, a, as much as a junior needs a mentor, a mentor should always have a junior they're ment uh, menteeing just because otherwise, if you have nothing but senior developers, you kind of get, you know, senior speak. People don't, they don't keep things simple. Um, no. If you're always coding as if a junior has to look at this eventually, you're probably actually going to code as a better rate. But in terms of the maximum, you don't want to overload seniors. Even like two feels like a lot. Like we when we never have more co-ops or lighthouse than we can give a single one to. Now, granted, mm -hmm. early stage, you might have to suck it up a little bit. So, I mean, probably two if you can give mentorship. Otherwise, it's going to be, you know taking too much of your time mentoring. But I mean, one of the early skills that you have to teach junior people is telling them when they need to escalate. I always tell every co-op, every Lighthouse Labs, your earliest skill is to figure out at what point do I bug my mentor about something? Because you don't want to do it too often to um, disrupt them, but you don't also want to be not either. We've definitely had co-ops and Lighthouse Labs graduates who went off on their own for way too long. We say like, okay, usually bang your head against the wall for like an hour and then escalate and ask a mentor for help. They need to kind of like, like early on, they need to learn how to deal with the frustration. One of the hardest parts about being a programmer, you know, is dealing with the frustration of it. It's a very frustrating job. And I think it's why more smart people aren't programmers is that they just can't handle the frustration level as required. Like a senior developer, like myself and my senior team, they've part of the reason like experience matters is that we've just been gotten our beaten up enough time by compilers <laughs> and deployments to know like what all these errors look like. So. Oh, that's fair. Cool. So we're, we're at, we're at 10 50 now. So I want to make sure that you get back to the rest of your meeting free Wednesday. Really appreciate you. your time. I think, I think we went through, through quite a bit here. And so for, for companies that, that want to reach out to you, want to speak with you, I guess, what topics would you be interested in, you know, doing some office hours with or, or, and what are you kind of interested in? Maybe there's different sectors or, or things like that, that you'd be interested in chatting about. Um, obviously marketing is where I'm most, I mean, the, uh, the marketing space is what we know here, but almost, I mean, I'm a technology person through and through as much as I can kind of help with the early stage um, product stuff. Mm -hmm. The kind of thing I do that I like to think a lot, a lot of other founders in Vancouver do is that like, again, I'm a technologist through and through who made this company. Not a lot of big Vancouver companies tend to have, you know, uh, w like whenever I'm selling candidates, I tell them our founder team has three computer science degrees and a designer just because a lot of startups in Vancouver are just a couple marketers who got together in business school and, you know, mm -hmm. are going to treat um, IT like a cost center. But, you know, I always appreciate the craft of like continuous development, deployment, and just making sure you have a sound technology strategy. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, and I think, I mean, from my kind of more limited vantage point, a lot of, a lot of the questions I get will be because we, you know, at launch and you, you've experienced this in the past as well. Like we have perks for, for Google cloud, we have perks for AWS, we have perks for whatever IBM calls themselves, they say blue something. Um, um, and, and they go, okay, well, you know, I'm already on AWS, but Google's offering me more money. And, and, you know, the, the decision-making starts yeah. there and, and I, have no input to this so so it's one of those things where it actually doesn't really you got to pick one i mean i picked aws and there's no harm in picking aws um what i'm actually going to do is i gave a talk a long time ago i'm just going to drop it in the comments sweet if and you want we'll if you sure. want the t yeah that uh youtube link is the tldr of my how to be a cto of a tech company granted it's a couple years old um and also it's kind of funny because the whole thing uh ends with like um my dog is in that talk at the very end, you just hear me going 
to some, but it makes it, I go, shh, tell it, but it makes it sound like I'm getting mad at some old white lady in the, in the, uh, in the, in the uh, crowd at the very end, but just know that's my dog that I'm shushing, not a person. Otherwise I come off looking like an asshole at the very end there. Um, but yeah, those, that's kind of like the, um, in terms of an early stage startup CTO being what that's like, that's kind of the, anything kind of in that YouTube clip, I'm happy to kind of talk about and expand on further. But keep in mind that some of my opinion, I, I very intentionally have a list of tech opinions, but I made sure I put the date of 2016 in that slide because that might not, you know, depending on how that ages. Right. Or we're still talking about HTML5 and other things. Um, cool. So thank you so much for your time and we will let you get back to it. Appreciate you. All right. Thank you very much. All Thanks right. For having take care. Me. Be safe. Bye.